Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Sunny Han, CEO of Fulcrum. The grandiose vision is that there are problems that are getting more and more complicated as we advance as a civilization. We're going to start yearning over time for higher and higher quality objects and things that we use. And that's naturally going to drive a difference in how quickly we need to be able to react to those changes in the production lifecycle. This is Sunny. He's a serial entrepreneur. He founded Empiris in 2010 and co-founded Terran Logistics in 2012. He's the prototype of a tech entrepreneur on a mission. He founded Fulcrum in 2015, which he leads as a CEO to build a manufacturing platform for forward-thinking manufacturers. Its mission? To deliver a connected future where frictionless manufacturing, production and supply chains lead to faster and better product innovations. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Sunny to my podcast. We explore what supply chains should be all about. Sunny shares his vision about the future of manufacturing and how he's planning to make that a reality. He shares his big lessons learned in creating something that's 10x better and what it requires in terms of leadership, mindset, and structure. Lastly, he talks about what it means to create a software business that's generationally valuable. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to create breakthroughs in design and approach by taking a big picture perspective of an entire industry. Secondly, how to convince yourself that you have to do the hard work and looking for the easy answers is the path of least resistance. Thirdly, the power of creating an existential desire inside your business to build something that is still useful to people when we're dead. And fourthly, what happens when you make your sales process more exclusive? Well, hi, Sunny. Thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I mean, I told you already prior to starting the call that this is a topic dear to my heart, SaaS ERP. I actually like the way, I mean, on LinkedIn, I found that it's a SaaS ERP for forward-thinking manufacturers. Well, that's, I think, is worth a story in its own right for a new generation of production. 
Yeah, I mean, I've got a long background for people that know me in ERP space. So yeah, eager to hear what this is transformed to in the last couple of years. But before we start, just a little bit about yourself. If you would define yourself with two or three characteristics, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> that would be positive characteristics. Can they be negative ones? <laughs> I would say that I'm aggressive, thoughtful, and goofy. Those are probably the three words. Never heard those three together. Love it. <laughs> well, we'll see how that plays out during the call, whether, these, whether we can actually label this together. But yeah, I mean, just the fact that you come up with these three words is already thoughtful in itself because I wouldn't have picked them together. So yeah, I mean, I saw that your company, Fulcrum Pro, started 2015 and yeah, moved from there. I mean, since I've been in the ERP space for a long time, I know that this, this is a category of software that has been around for decades. What was the big idea that inspired you to start a company? Well, it wasn't building an ERP system, that's for sure. That was very, very reluctant. I think for me, I wasn't born on a manufacturing floor. I don't have a family that owns a manufacturing facility. I stumbled into manufacturing kind of very much by accident and really started to talk to a bunch of small and medium and big manufacturers all over the country and all over the world. Yeah. And I think the primary realization that I had was that there's this application of technology and the internet to business that's happened over a long period of time, but it hasn't actually permeated into the core things that businesses do. We have a network for manufacturing already. It's just very analog. People call each other and send faxes and PDFs and enter information into databases and this idea of what if we could digitize this analog network of how manufacturers work with each other, what would actually happen? And I think that's the kind of the initial infection in my brain of an idea that became, okay, we have to build an ERP. And there's, I don't know, dozens of steps in between those two points, but that's how it started. It started with this concept of we here in America, at least, and many places in Europe and in Japan and around the world we have a democratic, decentralized, individualist approach to capital. Capital in the original sense, which is the physical things and spaces that are needed to build stuff, right? Manufacturing is one of the oldest, if not the oldest industry that supports everything else. Because of that, this coordination between smaller businesses is really important. It's really important for us to be able to have a fluid supply chain. And people say supply chain all the time, but in the way that I mean it, it's the group of companies that have to work together to produce your computer or your mouse or your microphone or the backloader that helps construct a skyscraper or whatever it may be. A group of companies usually has to come together to get this work done. That was the formation of it. And we started off, I started off on nights and weekends trying to connect existing legacy ERPs together to make this network. Then we tried to create some software to build on top of existing ERP systems. And then we tried to build even more software to integrate with existing ERP systems. And what we found is just the schism between the architecture that most of the systems that are out there use and what we wanted to do, it was just too great. The amount of time we had to spend integrating with old systems that are on-premise and we had to install software on site. And if their internet went down or their computer had to reboot, our software stopped working. And it was just a huge nightmare. So we reluctantly pivoted to making the whole shebang sometime in 2019, at November of 2019, December of 2019. So. 
Fascinating. And I mean, yeah, it's well, in the biggest sense of the word, fascinating in terms of how you stumbled across yeah, that whole, how complex the problem really is. Because it's indeed not about individual manufacturers doing one individual thing. Everything is connected there. Especially also when you see now, for example, during COVID with this, how it can be completely disrupted when a ship just gets crushed in a river or in a yeah. canal. So what is the opportunity if we get this right? Like what is the before and after once the world starts to embrace and adopts the new approach? Well, I think one thing to mention too is that like manufacturers are really good at manufacturing. Like they know what they're doing. There's a lot of stuff that's happening in the physical world that we're not a part of right now, but there's companies that are making really awesome autom- like robotic welding machines, really great automation in terms of applying computers to the actual producing of parts. You know, there's spaceship companies that are 3D printing spaceships that are deformed so that when they cool, they become the right ship. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening with 3D printing. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. And I think that will continue to advance. And those things will drive huge amounts of value that are created. For us, the impact that we have is to create a new platform so that these companies can very easily plug into the companies that are doing the manufacturing. So instead of having to build a software system that helps you do estimating and then have to write something that integrates with an old legacy system, they can just plug easily into a modern API that we have. If you want to connect your robotic welders into a database of drawings and also know the schedule of when it's supposed to be done and just have it start automatically at the right time, you can pull that information out of our platform. So what we expect to create, not in the long term, but in the midterm, in the next few years, is a way for other manufacturing technology companies to scale faster by being able to connect into our system instead of having to figure out this integration problem. But overall, the grandiose vision is that there are problems that are getting more and more complicated as we advance as a civilization. When I was a kid, the shape of a car didn't change every year. It changed every three or four years. The Toyota Corolla was boxy and then it was round and it stayed like that for a while. But you look around and Cars, phones, computers, all the devices and things we use, they're innovated and changing much, much more rapidly. Not only that, the personalization of each item is getting better. And I think it's a sign that we're being more productive and have more wealth. And I think that trend hopefully will continue and our productivity continues to increase. I think we're going to start yearning over time for higher and higher quality objects and things that we use. And that's naturally going to drive a difference in how quickly we need to be able to react to those changes in the production life cycle. And we're already seeing that. We're already seeing that we're at the edge of that. What I believe the next generation is for a mechanical engineer or a designer to be able to have a CAD system that as they're designing the part, it has the ability to pull together the actual manufacturability of it and say, all right, you added a bend to this. Well, now it's going to have to be roll formed. And we know what you know the lead times and the capacities are for all these different roll formers. This is going to add this much risk and this much cost and things like that. On the other end of the scale, what it's going to do is it's going to be able to tell people there's actually huge demand for roll forming. So you might have a much easier time investing in a roll forming machine and hiring some roll forming technicians, and it'll be easier to get a loan. And really what that is indicating is just a much more efficient market that's happening. I expect it to have the same effects that the stock market had when we automated the stock market. We got rid of a bunch of brokers, but we found better marketplaces and we reacted much faster. Now there's some negatives to digitizing the network that we had to 
solve for, but the overall value that we delivered, massive. And so I think that's the dream that motivates our team is to create that same effect in manufacturing. Let me make a small interruption here. Sonny just made a critical remark about the essence that sets his business apart. It starts by taking their unique perspective about what supply chain is really all about, i.e. the group of companies that have to work together to produce a specific product. With that as the foundation, they've applied a perspective that's outcome-driven and enabling them to turn the manufacturing we know today upside down. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. They master the art of curiosity, then focus on the essence, and with that create new value possibilities that change the way things are done forever. And you can master these traits as well. In the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. I love the fact that you just take it broader and yeah, that whole opportunity of how the market for manufacturing will evolve and create yeah, a much better society overall. Because typically it's always been around do the same thing faster and cheaper and possibly better, but not like well, the explanation that you gave, the scaling of faster, the speed of innovation that can yeah, I mean, multiple times faster, the personalization that you highlight there. Very inspiring. So the opportunity is there. That's the opportunity. And I really like that. So then you said that in 2019, it came to market. So you've spent a couple of years yeah, sorting things out. In a world where there's so many components already there and there's so many components maybe still missing, like how do you decide where to start? And what do you decide to kind of build yourself and really to kind of to leave to others? Yeah, I think, first of all, like as I grew up and I'm still growing up, dealing with youthful arrogance is always the problem, right? Like one of the things that you don't realize until it's too late is how many assumptions you make about the world. And I think early on in this journey, by the time I started the company in 2015, I already had an eight-year career working with small businesses with many, many manufacturers. But I read a lot of stuff online about other startups. I think the underlying arrogance that I had was it's actually really easy comparatively to start a business in the internet space. There's just very little that's done there, right? And I know we've had the internet for a couple decades now, really, that everybody's been using it. But the risk in an internet company typically is, are people going to want your NFTs or are people going to want to do trades on their phone? The answer is yes. You can make a really big business really quickly. If the answer is no, you try again. But the actual technical execution is fairly simple compared to other things that we can do. In the manufacturing space, we've, like I said earlier, we've, we've had decades, hundreds of years to figure some very simple stuff out very, very well. The need is there. As long as we can deliver the technical product, everybody will want it and need it. But the actual work of building it is much harder, right? So it's just sure. a very different moat and a very different you know, thing that we're doing. And everybody talks about moats in a really positive way, right? Businesses, you want a big moat. That's what Warren Buffett wants when he's looking for a company. No one ever tells you that in order to have a company with a big moat, you got to build the moat and you got to cross it yourself first, right? So the bigger the moat, the harder it is to actually create it. And so that I think is a better analogy description than I used to use about what the difficulty of creating this product is. So there's a lot of people that are really good at what they're doing. They're providing a lot of feedback. There's a lot of pain out there, a lot of problems to solve. I don't think it's even a question of prioritization. You can't just build one thing and build the next thing. What we realized is it's 
every single time you build something else, it's a collection of 19 things that finally delivers a huge amount of value. So it's which 19 things do you build and how do you build them? And I think for us, it was just getting really hipster about it and talking about everything in terms of physics and first principles. And so we distilled manufacturing down into it's adding energy to matter to make useful parts. And you want to add as little energy and as little materials as possible to make the most usefulness as possible. And that was the lens that we used. How do we look at all the tasks that are done in the current way people are doing manufacturing, which of those things are cultural or you know just the way things are done, and which are the things that are actually decreasing the amount of energy and time and material to make the most useful parts. And we created a collection of all of those things and built that first. And it was just not useful. It was not useful because it still needed to connect to other things. It still needed to connect to sales orders and stuff like that. So yeah. then we built all the support structures for that next. And then lastly, we built all the infrastructure to make it fast and usable and pretty and all these other things. So that's probably the best way to describe our journey. In retrospect, I can explain it like that. And you can think I'm a genius. But in the <sighs> middle, it was just extremely confusing and completely wrong for many years before we figured it out. So, Oh, that's why I'm asking the questions. So in that whole process, what was the hardest nut to crack for you? Well, the real answer to that question is like my own emotions, I think, were probably the hardest thing to crack. I wouldn't describe myself as like a risk averse person, but there's always this fear that you're just tragically, catastrophically wrong, especially when you have no customers, right? And so the tension between pleasing one potential customer versus another one, that was really, really, really poignant, even from the beginning. And of course, the answer at the end was just way harder. Like as a human, you're always searching for the easiest answer. I think that's a good thing, right? That's why we're efficient as a species. But in developing this product, the answer wasn't, okay, build something for you that's better than what you're doing now and build something for me and then try to merge them together. It was, you need to find something that's 10 times better than what each of these people are doing. So they'll both move to this new solution. And that's just really, really difficult, right? But once we put our brains to it. We found those answers. It took time. But I think the thing that actually was the challenge was just convincing ourselves that we had to do the hard work. Because for too long, we tried to look for the easy answers. And it wasn't until we actually kind of bit the bullet and really just said, okay, this answer has to be new and better and different that we've started finally getting better answers. It was just way harder to do it that way, right? All of our easy early answers, they were clever and cool and people liked them, but it just wasn't in, we just knew it wasn't going to be enough to create this type of economic level change. And we could have built a nice product and had a few thousand customers and things like that. And venture capitalists would have liked less and whatever, who cares? But for us, this existential desire to create a generationally valuable company, that's what brings us all together. And it took me a long time to realize that. It took me a long time of making the mistake of looking for the easiest answer possible before I silenced myself and instead started asking a ton of questions and got more thoughtful about it. Fascinating. I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. And what do those companies that we start talking about and keep talking about do different from the ones that are not about that? In all the interviews that I do, and I do a lot of them like today, this whole thing of indeed the exponential impact because otherwise people won't move in the first place. But the generation of valuable companies is a very interesting way to describe it. And that's what it's really all about, because that is the lasting power. 
and it's about something radically different from what we've seen before. The philosophical promise of capitalism and democracy is that we've freed the feeling of legacy from family. And, you know, instead of building hordes of money that you pass down to the people that inherit it, you can finally be rewarded and build something that is useful for society that can pass through as long as possible, right? So I think not everybody's motivated by that, right? There's no less honor in working on something incremental. But for us, for us, weird group of 60 some people now, we're all bound together because we all share this maybe arrogant desire to have built something that when we're dead, it's still useful to people. So you're preaching to the converted. I think it creates much stronger companies that are willing to go the extra mile. It creates, what's the word for that? Yeah, the, the, oh, I forgot, I forgot the name of it. When people go the extra mile without asking. I think that is a part of it because you believe in something and you see something together that's yeah generationally valuable and it gives you an edge. So from you said like doing the hard work and that's a topic and a theme that always often comes back. Can you give an example of one thing that you like been, been walking around for a long time like because you didn't really want to do it but at the end it was the thing that was needed? Okay, well we just hired a new employee that works closely on the product team with me. Our product team is very small. It's me and three other people right now, but this person is very smart and we like him a lot and he's fitting in really well. But one of the things we do that was extremely shocking to him is once in a while, we print out literally on paper, every single screen in the entire product. And our product's very large now. There's hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper. We use a paper cutter to cut it down and then we use a piece of construction paper. This is like, you know, elementary school crafts that's color coded by the different personas, the different types of people that use our product. And we plot it all on a giant wall. And then we take all the feedback, good and bad, and our own feedback that our customers haven't given us and write it all on post-it notes. Each of those post notes are colored by the different type. And when we map that feedback into the different screens... And then we look at, we use sometimes yarn or string to connect things together. And we do this because we're trying to visualize four or five, sometimes six different dimensions of data all at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, you could pipe it into some BI dashboard or whatever it may be, but it's the visceral action of just doing it, walking around and seeing it. And then ideas start to kind of click and form. And I think very, the intuition that I used to have was, well, let's just focus on one part of the application on one user on one thing and optimize it for them. But I think one of the beautiful things that we've realized is that these manufacturing companies, their departments, if you will, are extremely connected to each other. The person that yep. designs the bill of materials influences the way that the production is scheduled all the way to when it's shipped and outside processing and power coding. So I think looking at it holistically has helped us to generate some of our best ideas, to deliver company-wide value to our customers. Glad you explained that fascinating example. And I completely agree with you. I know it from other things that I've been working on, but taking this big step back, looking at the big picture, suddenly you then start to see patterns that you normally just don't see. And they make a lot of impact. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
So you already mentioned customers and pleasing one customer over another customer and so on. What have you learned in the process of starting to sell this, bringing it to market? Because I can also imagine, well, first of all, the industry in itself has existed for so long that there's also a lot of tradition there. What has been a big lesson learned in the sales process? Oh, man, I probably have hundreds, but there's probably three like important ones that might be relevant to other people. The first is that a lot of the people that are making similar products to us say they can do a lot of things, but we actually do them, which you might think is a good thing, but it's actually hard, right? How do you tell someone, no, 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 no. we actually do this. You know, you've heard for a decade that this is how your software works and it's always been a disappointment. We actually do it. So the fact that we're doing something that's fundamentally built differently, but on the surface is something that already exists is actually really, really challenging. As a kid, I went through the transition and I was in college or high school, I think at the time when the first iPhone came out. And I remember at the time thinking, oh man, this is obvious. Like who wouldn't want a phone that does this? But it was actually a, probably an extremely difficult thing because Imagine going back in time to sell the iPhone without anyone knowing about it. You would say, well, my, this phone can send picture messages and the Nokia phone would be like, I can do that as well. Oh, this phone can browse the internet and your Blackberry can do that as well. But it is the way in which it does it and the way in which it does it all in an ecosystem that's just so difficult to just get someone to believe. And you know, when you say demo, most customers think, oh my goodness, there's going to be a script and they're going to click through their screen. So we had to really fundamentally change the way that we thought about how we demonstrate the software. And so we do a few annoying things. We ask a lot about the customer before we even show the software, great, but we great. do refreshing things as well too. We let the customer log in with a temporary login and we tell them what to click on their computer as they share their screen. So just little judo tricks to try to get that sense of belief as high as possible about I'm saying that it does this and it actually does it. And not only does it do it, it does it in a completely different way. And oh, by the way, doing this in concert with a bunch of other features is really where the magic is. And that is the aha moment that we get in the sales process that just seals the deal. True. The second lesson I would couple onto that and say, we got pretty good at that to the point where you can sell our product in just a few days from the time you meet someone. You can take somebody that's in production, get them extremely excited, and they'll sign a contract or get someone to sign a contract. But it's talking to the people whose lives will change, sometimes for the worse a little bit in finance or in sales. Whenever you're doing something different, people's lives are going to change. And even if it's for the better, if you don't respectfully talk to them, even though they're not the people that are doing the shop floor production, it's just not going to have very much goodwill. And it's just kind of a bad, you know, jerk thing to do. You know what I mean? So the majority of our sales process time, the reason it takes many weeks is just making sure that everyone understands what the future state is going to look like for them. Even if they're not in a position of prominence at the company that they work at, and also fundamentally to filter out the people that don't actually fit. And yeah. In the beginning, we had all these idealistic comments about how these legacy systems are so bloated and they have all these fields everywhere. Well, what causes that is this desire to grow at all costs. And we went through the same period of like, all right, we'll add this little feature to close this deal. And I thought, well, they're not big features, but it's the million little features that cause the bloat, right? And 
the market is huge. There's hundreds of thousands of small and medium manufacturers in the US alone, let alone in the world. This discipline of saying in the sales process, we're actually saying no more often than we're saying yes, but the yeses are going to fit really well. We've, we've learned that lesson very recently, just in the last year or so, but you know, we've changed our sales process to be more exclusive. And I think that increases the credibility too. If you genuinely uh-huh. want to make sure that they fit, it massively increases the credibility that you have with your customer too. Completely agree. And I mean, I thank you for making the point about the desire to grow at all costs because so many companies are doing it and it just gets them into a worse position where the desire to grow at all costs becomes even higher because yeah. they have to. And it's sure. like, it's a virtuous cycle. So, I mean, I'm currently writing a long blog on the art of segmentation. And that is exactly, of course, where the cocktail happens. Have you got any, and what have you learned in the segmentation process in terms of how deep you really have to go? I think we're right in the middle of it. We've had maybe a few little nuggets that we've mined out of our experiences, but I would say the biggest things that I think were surprising is just one, how powerful Google is and how we think about things. So when we started thinking about segmentation, the first thing that everyone did, it was like, well, what are the filters that are available on AdWords, right? And that just is a really stupid way to think about things. It's how I think. But if you think about it logically, how is it possible that Google just invented the right filters for your business and your product? It didn't, right? And so for us, again, we reached for the easy answers and then we got to the hard ones. And the hard one is, who are the customers that are happy with you? Who are the customers that they're happiest with you and why? What are the true reasons why? And then yep. think about other people that might share that problem. I think the challenge is that really great segmentation, I think, always starts out extremely abstract to the point where you're always thinking, how the hell am I ever going to target people that are like this? But I think you'll find ways. And we found like really oddly specific things that actually are really good. Like all the things that we thought were abstract are actually, you know, deliverable in a targeted way. Like we want customers that are between 20 and 200 employees that have this list of machines that, you know, work with these types of materials that have these types of customers that have the average age of the production manager in this age band. And they probably have a LinkedIn profile and they've probably been around for this many years and they probably have, you know, this position that only this type of company has. And you realize, well, actually all of these things are very targetable. They probably are hacky people that make their own spreadsheets to solve stuff if their current ERP can't do it. Well, you can target them on Mr. Excel or somewhere. Like there's like all sorts of ideas that start coming out when you get oddly specific. But I think the intuition is you can't get oddly specific because you can't target. I think you have to push through that intuition to get oddly specific and then reverse engineer how you target from there. Well said, well said. So maybe I'm going to use a couple of lines from that in a blog next week, but that is exactly what it is all about. It's really a barrier that you have to go through indeed and be super honest about, okay, it's not every customer. If you can look in hindsight that not every customer is a customer you would likely want to have again. Some of them you're likely going to say, okay, they fit it functionality wise, but honestly, they would have been better off with competition. Because, yeah, they drag you in a different direction as well. Well said. Was there a moment where you started to feel sort of a tipping point in this area? No. <laughs> I don't okay. know. Maybe, maybe. But the tipping points never feel like tipping points in the moment, do they? They feel like crises. Like the tipping points were maybe a couple of years ago where 
we had so many leads that I had to take leads. Like we had an SDR that was, you know, had only been at the company for a few months and he was doing demos. Like that's what the tipping points feel like, right? It feels unsatisfiable demand, or it feels like a three month period of working 90 hours a week, not because you have to, but because you just have so much idea power and so much like, like so many things are being built and you realize how exhausting it is afterwards. But that was a creative tipping point for us, right? Or it feels like the moment where a huge amount of work just gets kicked off without anyone saying anything because you all know that you found the right answer as to how we're supposed to approach it. So in the moment, it doesn't feel great. It feels exhausting and it feels demanding, but I would say those were the tipping points or when we finally found some product market fit where a group of people, when they saw the product, just knew that they wanted it. Or when we found a group of people that we knew had a high probability that they all fit exactly the type of person that would want our product. Or we found an answer to digitizing the paper traveler on the shop floor is actually the key to getting all the data faster that then feeds our vision of the network future. And then a dozen engineers all go build stuff on their own to meet in the middle. Like those, I think are the workflow tipping points. So, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Is there any big difference to see between what you think yourself as product market fit and when the market starts to agree with you? Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I still don't think we have enough product market fit, not nearly enough, but I think humans are always comparative, right? And so you go through being rejected 999 times and the first person to say, yes, this is great. You're like, we have product market fit. Well, that's product company fit. Like you you fit one company, right? And then you start to be able to sell it fairly easily to the point where a person who's never worked in software or manufacturing or in a startup is able to sell it within just a couple months, you tell yourself that's product market fit, right? You tell these stories about, yeah, think about how hard it is and that's product market fit. Well, that's really not. You might've found a really good person or it might just be luck or it might just be that you found 50 customers, right? That's not product market fit, especially not when your market's 300,000 customers large. And so I think there's always these bursts of well-deserved positive reinforcement, but we label each of those as product market fit. I think investors will say, well, you're adding a half a million to a million dollars in ARR a quarter. That's product market fit. Well, not really, right? I think for us, what we expect, what we hope is that there will be a point in time where the average person we talk to, whether they want to be a customer or not, or this is the right time or not, just has a de facto understanding that Fulcrum is going to be in their future at some point in time. It is just the best answer. Yeah, that might be a good definition of product market fit. So, okay, that's a very interesting one to put it in. Is one of the things that always fascinates me as well. I mean, you talked about the journey of the company started in 2015, at the moment around 70 employees. What is your philosophy around creating leverage in the business? Where do you put the focus there? Yeah, I'm not a huge soccer, as you call football fan, but I think the position of the goalie is essentially the position of the CEO. And not that we're trying to keep the ball out of the net, but I would describe that the majority of my job is choosing how far from the goal that we stand, right? In soccer, you can't stand too close to the goal and you can't stand too far away from it. And as the game changes, as people get more tired, your position changes. I think that's very similar to how I think about this question of leverage. For me, it's like a trade-off between effectivity and efficiency. We can do a little less specific and a little less good of a job, but do it much more efficiently. In the beginning, we all come from bigger companies, typically, when you start a startup company. 
and you all crave the structure and the systems and the efficiency that you used to be able to have, the documentation, whatever it is that you used to have. Uh-huh. But choosing to do efficient things is like playing a video game and investing in like stats that help your whole character without even being able to do anything, right? Like you have to choose effectivity first. Making that transition is always painful, I think, because you're taking things that created the initial value that you created and you're diluting them a little bit. And so you have to figure out ways to make up for it and make the product better even still while still gaining the efficiency. So for me, that's a really sensitive topic. I think that's the one thing that specifically I can get wrong and mess the whole company up is choosing to not give up that effectivity for efficiency or choosing the efficiency too soon. And the way that I think about it primarily is just like having the discipline to let things break first before fixing it. To me, that's been the primary way for me to not ensure, but have a higher likelihood that the decisions on efficiency are correct. Because oftentimes I think we believe we can see a problem coming and we try to solve it in advance because humans love preventing disaster. But I think in business, especially a rapidly growing company, we're three to five Xing every year in terms of revenue and two to three Xing in headcount. In that environment, I think we have a logically justifiable strategy of waiting for things to break before we fix them, right? Because something is broken all the time. It's the thing that is extremely broken that then you go fix. So I think breaking that habit of trying to prevent disasters, that also stems from arrogance because you have to believe you can predict the future in order for you to believe you can fix problems before they happen. So if there's one kind of mantra that I have is like, is this actually broken? And why do we think it's broken? Because oftentimes you'll convince yourself something's broken just because you're uncomfortable with it, not because it's actually. So those are very vague and very unuseful, but those are the two ways that I think about, you know, getting leverage in the company. Well said. I get the point that you make, and I think it's a very valuable way of looking at things. That's really where the reflection comes in as well. I've already made a point about my writing my book, The Remarkable Effect. Is this your first startup that you founded? The first real one, right. I started two other companies, like Incorporated had a, a company. Yeah. The first one, we never had a single dollar in revenue and never had a single customer that wanted to buy our product, nor did we even build a product. But I spent almost a year working on that. And then a second one where we had, I was the primary person, I had a couple of people working for me, but we had a product, people bought it, but it was just very limited in its scope. I sold it for a little bit of money. I would say I learned a few things, obviously, from those experiences. But this is the first time that I said we're going to build something great instead of just figure out how to make a business work, right? So That's what the question is about. You know, what do you believe is the secret to building a remarkable software business? Is there (laughs) like one or two things that you say, okay, these are things that, yeah, are must-haves? Oh, I don't know. For me, at least, it was being okay failing. Before that, the decisions that I made, although I didn't think so at the time, pushed us into a corner of incrementalism and risk aversion. And I think that's a reason, like being risk tolerant doesn't mean that you're okay failing. (laughs) Being risk tolerant just means you're okay taking risks and you fail sometimes and you hate it. But I think sometimes doing amazing things means that you have to go into it expecting to be hit in the face with a failure because it's not about not trying hard once you make the decision. It's about not actually making the correct decision. When you don't have a tolerance for failure, you weigh the risk reward completely differently. 
yeah. you have to kind of very foolishly, mathematically foolishly, take the cost of failure to zero, basically, and then weigh your answers. And I think most of the best decisions that have given us hope that we will be a big, awesome company come from those types of decisions. As we grow larger, I personally get more afraid of those types of decisions and I need to train myself not to because now we have something to lose, right? We have a viable business that could be worth quite a bit of money and there's investors that, you know, want to salvage something. Now, there are also investors that really want you to go to the moon and swing for the fences. And we found some really good ones that are supporting us. But, you know, in general, it gets harder to care little about failure when you have something that actually has value. And so, yeah, continuing to do that for as long as possible, I think is important. And other people have said the same thing, right? They've said, you have to be okay killing your own product. That's like a big Apple thing, right? Or at Google, you have to be you know, okay, eating your own revenue streams. And every big company says something similar. But for me, I translate that into, okay, this thing might fail. Like, because if we eat our own revenue, but this new product is better, but doesn't cost whatever it might be, there's always a fear that you're going to go backwards and fail. So I think ultimately, if, if I were to distill it down to one thing, it would be being tolerant of like massive failure, not wanting it, but not eliminating it from your decision profile before you decide what to do. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I got another question in relation to this, which is like, what have you learned in the tidbits of wisdom, a do and a don't? But I think that is, I think it's summoning it up already. Is there anything, well, to add to that, like a don't or a specific (laughs) do for people that aspire to start a company like you've done yourself or to make this big shift in terms of how they're doing it today towards, okay, I'm going to try it as well. So I learned how to write software at a really young age. I started taking math at the University of Minnesota in elementary school and all those things. But I think one thing that I learned there, and I think almost every really good engineer just knows intuitively, and even people who've played a lot of video games or tinkered with computers, you tend to learn that there's a realm of problems where if you're willing to sit and think about it for a while uncomfortably, that's the best approach to solving the problem. There are a lot of people who hate math, especially higher level math, because it's not about learning how to do algebra, executing and getting that dopamine hit every time you solve a problem, right? There's no incrementalism sometimes in larger problems, but really good engineers all have the ability to sit there and just stare at the same 50 lines of code. And then finally the idea comes and the brain is working on it. I think that's a combination of faith because you know that it's happened before, but also of shame, because you know that the cheating of not sitting there comfortably, of just copying and pasting someone else's code and not understanding it, that's what causes bugs in the future and things like that. So I think over time, the art of making software itself teaches you that sitting in discomfort is the ultimate way to solve some of the most important problems. And it feels awful, right? Like you have deadlines and there's pressure and you gave an estimate to some product manager or whatever it may be, but disciplining yourself to just say, I have to sit here and think about it. Even though I know that, I haven't been able to apply that to the business side of things consistently, which is disappointing. But so I know that, I viscerally know that, but when it comes to business stuff, I'm always yearning to be comfortable. Can't we just comfortably grow and I just have to worry about it anymore. Even though I know that solving problems is what we're doing to build a business, I still intuitively just 
get annoyed and upset when things aren't comfortable. And the kind of the don't would be don't try to seek comfort as your definition of success. In fact, everyone I've talked to that's ahead of me that is successful as a CEO, every one of them says either jokingly or very seriously, it never gets easier. And it's true. Your problems get larger and harder to solve. And I tell myself, my job is to sit uncomfortably for as long as possible, because two years from now, if I want to be an effective CEO, I got to sit even more uncomfortably for even longer problem. And it's so a train is. <laughs> it is exactly. It's like working out, right? I'm just, you know, building yeah. that muscle. Up. So again, shameful, but I know that's how you solve hard problems, but I just can't consistently apply it to these business problems. And so the don't is don't use comfort as your barometer for how good your business is going. And there are all sorts of consultants and people like that that will tell you, well, if your business doesn't run itself, it's not really a business. To me, maybe that's true for somebody, but for solving hard problems, it just has not been true. And every time I try to seek that, things get bad. And every single time I'm tolerant of being the person that has to be the most tolerant of discomfort, things get solved and get good. So- Again, that might not be useful for everybody's business or everybody's problems or solving or everyone's culture. But for me, that's the biggest don't. Wise advice. I mean, I'm going back to what you said in the beginning, aggressive, thoughtful, goofy. I think we've seen a whole lot of that during this conversation. And yeah, I mean, I want to thank you for that. I mean, I think that the last piece of advice was a really good one to top it off. Thanks for sharing this. Thanks for the wisdom and that you explained, the anecdotes that you gave. And I'm going to keep following Focom Pro too. Yeah, in the future. Generational valuable. I think that is a word that I'm going to kind of think about a long time. <laughs> Thanks for this. I appreciate it. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Sonny. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Sonny Han. CEO of Fulcrum. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. 
You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.